By the way, just uh, a little bit of follow-up on that. Thank you for your generosity this past year. Uh, biggest uh, giving year we've ever had. Amazing when you think of us, especially in light of what's gone on in America. Just uh, thank the Lord. Let's give Him praise. Would you praise God? Awesome. Thank you also for being so faithful this past week. It was an awesome time. I got a text from Brother Thrift this morning, and he just still is just uh, just so excited about what God is doing here. He's thrilled. Thank you for your generosity to him. That gave him a good love offering. And so uh, we're blessed to be able to be here this morning and to be in church. And for those of you that are online, thank you for joining with us. We love you, and uh, we can't wait to hug your neck. And I'm glad to see things are opening up more and more. The schools are now opening up. Many churches are opening up. And you know things are changing when our governor says, we've got to open up our schools. <laughs> like, well, okay, amen. That's what we've been saying all along. But anyway, we're grateful. So thank God, and we can't wait to see you. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Now, we are at a real milestone in our study of the book of Revelation, because we are midway in this glorious, amazing book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is what the book of Revelation is. It is all about Jesus. It's just like the Lord to make the middle of the book of Revelation perhaps the hardest, <laughs> because uh, there's been more confusion, especially over the first couple of verses about what in the world God is doing. It is a wonderful book. This is a great chapter, but these first few verses especially are some head-scratching moments. And yet, when, they be, when we begin to unfold them, you, like I, are going to say, thank God for His mercy. And that's the theme that seemed the Lord just gave me this week as I was looking through this. And that is that God is a God of mercy. The book of Revelation, people get all fearful and some, you know, oh, I don't want to hear about that. And some say, oh, that's all about 666. Others say it's about Antichrist. Others says it's the apocalypse. I remind you again that the main character of the book of Revelation is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is the God of mercy. He is the God of grace and love and the book of Revelation has two purposes, basically, and that is to judge evil. Finally, hallelujah, it seems like sometimes we're never going to see the, the victory we'd like to see. It just seems like that evil seems to win so often, and yet in the book of Revelation, God gives us a sense of that great victory, and so he judges evil but the second thing is his great reward for righteousness. And what greater reward can there be than the great mercy of God? So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer here as we come to the book of Revelation. Father, we thank you for this great uh, reminder of uh, how that you are a God of love and a God of mercy. Thank you for uh, reminding us that in this time, you're going to give us Lord, two great witnesses of your mercy. Bless us today. Open our hearts and our minds. Just uh, witness to our hearts as you do in the book of Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We saw in chapter 4 that God is rolling back the skies, and He is letting us see what's about to happen. He gave the Apostle John this great vision, and this vision was of a scroll, a book, as the King James Version calls it, a book that's sealed seven times. It's just a scroll with a wax seal. It's broken. And open, we see a little bit more about what God's judgment is. So we go through these seven seals. We come to the seventh seal, and then God announces them with a shofar. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. And then we have one trumpet after another of God's just and righteous judgment. And then we saw last week, and, or the week before that, and the week before that, we saw that there's a pause a pause of grace, a pause of patience, a pause of mercy, where God says, uh, just stop for a moment, catch your breath. You need to realize that God's got something great happening here because God is not only a God of truth, but he is a God of mercy. I love what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 3. He said, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. The great Solomon was reminding all of us, he was saying, look, yes, God is a God of truth, but God is a God of mercy. God is a God where he reminds us that he is always there for us. And though his throne is high and lifted up, we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter four, that his throne is a throne of grace where we can obtain mercy. And so we look forward to this great chapter here. Let's kind of regroup our minds. So we've seen things happening, famines, wars, terrorism, earthquakes, unstoppable diseases. Kind of sounds like a newspaper article, doesn't it, right now? And then on top of that, a release of locust-type demons. They've been bound in a pit for uh, thousands of years. They are released out of this pit, and they come up forth, and they begin to eat the world, but they don't eat anything green. In fact, the Holy Spirit says you're not allowed to eat anything green, and so they literally chew on human beings for five months. It says they torment them, but nobody can die. Today, everybody wants to avoid death. I'm certainly among them, and yet then they're going to wish they could die, but God will not let anybody die during this period because they're going to be tormented. And then following that, there is a fiendish demonic army that comes out of the river Euphrates, 200 million demonic type creatures of some sort, and they come forth and again, they just attack the world. And uh, John uh, gave this witness that uh, this is a terrible time. And yet during all this time, there are going to be tremendous revival happening. The Bible reminds us that 144,000 spirit-filled Jewish evangelists. Well, I tell you what, just one Jewish evangelist, just one evangelist spirit-filled it can make a huge difference. I mean, look at what a man like Billy Graham, the impact he's had. That's just one person. Imagine if you had 144,000. They're all Jewish. And you know, they... God just has given those Jewish people just some amazing abilities. And so they're preaching all around the world. We are told that there is an innumerable uh, group 
of Gentiles that are also witnessing. They've refused the mark of the beast, and so they're out witnessing by the fact that they're not taking the mark of the beast, but also they are preaching. And then we're told there is an angel who is preaching the everlasting gospel. The same gospel that Adam had is the gospel that we have today. It's an everlasting gospel, and that is mankind can be saved by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, there's going to be so many people getting saved. Look what it says in Matthew 24 and verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. And so there's, in the midst of all of that going on, there's this amazing tribulation, great revival where so many people are getting saved. It's a thrill. And then on top of that, God, because he's such a merciful, loving God, raises up two wonderful witnesses that have supernatural power. They are God's superheroes. And these men clothed in sackcloth are going to preach the everlasting gospel. And so we are, let's look at these uh, two ministers of mercy this morning. Five different facts that I want to leave you with this morning, and I think your heart will be blessed. Number one, the witnesses are spiritually prepared in verse number one. And so God is, tells John, he says, I want you to go get your tape out. I want you to get your scope out, and I want you to do some measuring. We need to prepare these men. We need to prepare for the situation that's about to happen. All right, let's go to verse number one. Let's all read verse one together. If you would, please, uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse one, follow along now. If you're at home, read it out loud. Would you do that? All right, I think it'll be good for you. All right, let's join together. Ready, begin. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, John has been given many amazing visions, as we've seen. Some are dramatic, some are painful, some are wonderful. Occasionally, God says, I, this is not just showtime, but this is show and tell. I want you to be personally involved, like he did in the last chapter where he said, now I want you to eat the book, the little book, the scroll. He said, it's going to be uh, something you're going to do. And so look what it says here in verse number one. It says, there was a given me. There was given me. So somebody gave something to John. We imagine it's the same one that gave him that little book back in chapter 10. Uh, we're assuming and believing that it is none other than Jesus Christ. Look what it says, a reed like unto a rod. A reed like unto a rod. These reeds were, as you might imagine, they're just uh, something that might grow, uh, like a bamboo type uh, reed, a rod. There is, a, in fact, the actual word there uh, means uh, a rod, a kalamos is a, a type of bamboo type stick that grows in the Jordan Valley. And so there's these sticks, oftentimes growing 10 to 15 feet high. They're used for a wide variety of things. They use them for walking sticks. They would sharpen the end and poke the animals to get them going, especially those dumb oxes when they wouldn't work, you know. They would even take small ones and use them for writing. Then they even used them for measuring. They often used them to measure the length of something, and so they had a standardized length. Notice what it says. It says, I'm, it was given to me a rod, saying, rise 
and measure the temple of God. Measure the temple. And by, of course, that means you measure the altar. But then he also said, and them that worship therein. Now, why would God, and these are the verses you're like, what in the world? Why would God, first of all, what's this temple? And why is God measuring it? What's the point here? Well, there are two reasons in Scripture why God himself ever measured something. And that is for his disfavor and for his favor, his destruction and for his delight. He always measured something to point out what was his and what uh, was the devil's, what was his and what was given to this world. For example, his favor. In the New Jerusalem, in chapter uh, 21, verse 15, God measured the New Jerusalem as a sign of his favor. In Daniel chapter 5, God measured something for his destruction. You may remember the uh, great uh, sign on the wall to Belshazzar, and uh, the, there were three sayings on that wall. There was a handwriting on the wall. There was the word many, and there was the Hebrew word tekel, and then there was parson. Many means God has numbered. There's that measuring. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales, and parson, the scope or the breadth and the width of your kingdom has now been divided. And so God measured things when he wanted to favor something. If you want to bless somebody, you find out who that person is and the extent of what they are. And that's what God did. And so God plans to bless something. The temple, as it were, was divided. It was divided into a side he was going to bless. That's the, the, the Jewish side, the people that were coming to him. Then he was going to disfavor or destroy the other side. God was making a line in the sand. There have been four, there have been three temples and there will be a fourth temple. If you'll put up that chart, please, let's look at that. Over on the far left there, uh, you notice uh, there is the first temple and that is Solomon's temple. There have been three earthly temples to date. There'll be a fourth temple, uh, which is, or the, excuse me, there have been uh, well, there's, there's two temples that have been uh, divided into three. I'll show you that in a moment. But uh, the first temple was Solomon's. The second one was Zerubbabel. It uh, went into uh, destruction, but the foundation was still there, and Herod built it up. And so oftentimes the, the Zerubbabel-Herod temple is grouped together. That would be that orange one there. So the first one is Solomon's temple. Then there's Zerubbabel and Herod. And then, of course, in the middle is that heavenly a spiritual temple, God's people, we're the temple of Christ. And then third is the tribulation temple. It is an actual building that will be built in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where presently there's the Dome of the Rock. And then there is a fourth temple, or fifth, is depending on how you decide it there. But that fifth temple is the millennial temple. Now, what is this temple that's going to be built in the tribulation period. And some people, some Bible scholars, feel like it is even being built right now. But we know it's going to be built because the Antichrist is going to go into it. Look what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The man of sin, the Antichrist. It says he's going to be revealed. He's called the son of perdition. And in verse 4, as God, he's not God, but he's going to act like he's God, he sitteth in the temple of God. 
And so in this third temple, the tribulation temple, this coming temple that's going to be built, some feel like it's already being built, really no reason that it has to be built already. In fact, they could build it in one day. There's a lot of construction that comes up. But he's going to come. He's going to offer peace to the world. He's going to give everybody money. He's going to do things to just bring back all kinds of wonderful things to the world. He's going to say to Israel, you can have your religion. You can have your temple. They're going to build it. It's going to be amazing. He's going to satisfy everybody and when everybody is saying peace and prosperity, then he's going to go to the temple, and in the middle of that seven years, he is going to be the abomination of desolation, as Scripture calls him. He's going to come there, and he's going to say, I'm to be worshipped. And that's what it says. He is showing himself as God. That's exactly what Daniel chapter 9 says, and he is going to desecrate the temple. Now, what's happening during this time? At this very same time, incredible numbers of Jewish people are being saved. Romans chapter 11, let's turn there. Romans 11 and verse 25 and verse 26. God in verse 26 says, all Israel shall be saved. Now look at this. So this temple has been reinstituted. Folks, the Orthodox Jewish people and those religious Jews, not the secular Jews, they really don't care, but the religious Jews, they are longing for this temple worship. There's one big problem, however. That holy site, Mount Moriah, right now, has the second most holy place in the Muslim world. It's called the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock is there in Jerusalem, and they, are, they have occupied that place. But there's going to be this new tribulation temple. They're going to be so excited and they're going to go there and they're going to reinstitute all these Old Testament worship sacrifices. It's going to be amazing. And then all of a sudden, it's going to dawn on them. This is all about the Messiah. This is all about Christ. And many will be getting saved. In fact, so many will be getting saved. The Bible says all will be getting saved. And that's what now back to Revelation chapter 11. That's what God is saying. God is saying at that time, there's going to be this great dividing line and people are going to get saved. And the Jewish people whom God has promised salvation, whom God has said they will all be saved, that mark, that mark of favor, they're going to be saved. It's going to be amazing. Look what it says in Micah chapter 4 in verse 1. In the last days... It shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow into it. So these two Jewish witnesses, these ministers of mercy, these witnesses of mercy, they are going to be preaching the everlasting gospel of peace, of mercy that despite all the rejection of God that you've had towards God, God loves you and he will save you. And so he's going to put a mark in the sand as it were. He's going to say, God will save you if you'll come to him, accept him. And it's going to be a great revival, especially for the Jewish people, because he has promised that. Now look at verse two, 
Revelation 11:2. But the court that is without the temple, leave out. What? What are you talking about? Measure it not. John, don't measure this temple, this part of the temple, for it is given to the Gentiles. And that holy city they shall tread underfoot 40 and two months, three and a half years, 1290 days, as it talks about in the book of Daniel. God has made a covenant with Israel. I will save them. If they will come in mercy, they will come to my mercy. If they will accept me, I will save them. But God has no such covenant to the Gentiles. Now, thank God he saves Gentiles. Thank God he will save anybody who will come to him. Amen. Thank God for that. But he has a specific promise to the Jewish people. And that's what he's saying here, that he is going to save them. But right now, Jerusalem and the world is under the times of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 21 and verse 24 says that these are the times of the Gentiles. And so God is treading on, or the world is treading over Jerusalem. They are treading over Israel. And we know even to this day, everybody hates Israel. They are treading all over Israel. They've been doing so since uh, Assyria and Babylon and Rome took it over. Even the English came in and they trodden down the Arabs. Somebody's always been oppressing Israel, but God said, it's only going to last so long. At the middle of the tribulation period, God is going to begin a great change, a great dividing line of change. And then this, this mark, demarcation line between those that are accepting God and those that are not. The Jewish people for the most part, will be getting saved. The Gentile world, many of them will not be. They'll be accepting the Antichrist. And God is calling for a great moment to say, look, folks, this is a time to accept Christ. And so these ministers of mercy are not only there to give the mercy of God and the grace of God, but they are just reminding everybody that there is a dividing line. And it's up to us to make that right choice. As it were, that day, the sheeps and the goats, the tares and the wheat, even today there is a dividing line. The cry everywhere right now is for unity. The political world says we need unity. <laughs> what that really means is if you'll be like me, then we'll have unity. But if you're not like me, then it's not going to be that way. I was uh, disturbed, and I think I'm sure many of you were, when uh, the public broadcasting system, the PBS attorney, uh, attorney Michael Beller, few months ago, right before the elections, he was interviewed. You may have uh, heard about this, and it was just shocking, the thought. You talk about a dividing line and between evil and uh, between good. His idea was that uh, if, especially if Donald Trump loses, which uh, sadly has happened here, but it says that these, uh, we need to have camps for the children of Donald Trump supporters, because in his words, we are raising a generation of intolerant, horrible people, horrible kids. And I now quote, this is his exact quote. He said, after the election, we will go for the Republican voters. We'll ask Homeland Security to take their children away and to put them in re-education camps. That's a, a line that has been drawn. And that, uh, folks, I remind us all that 
We thank God for pockets of revival. We thank God for anything good going on. But when we read the book of Revelation, we know that there is a line being drawn and God says it's going to come. People are either going to take the mark or they're not going to take the mark. People are either going to be on the side of God's favor or not God's favor. They're going to choose the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, or they're not going to choose that. And so God is spiritually preparing this world. He is dividing between the sheep and the goats. And that's the first two verses. The witnesses are spiritually prepared. Now let's move on. Number two, the witnesses are sovereignly portioned. There's a specific time and a specific number. Look at verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now let's meet uh, these, uh, what's going on here and what's happening. The Bible says that these two witnesses I will give power. Again, that personal pronoun means that Jesus is giving them power. The word there is spiritual authority. He's going to give them power, authority to preach the gospel and to bring judgment. Notice what it says, two witnesses. The word witness there is the word, Greek word for martyr. We get the English word martyr from it. These are real people. The, some have suggested that the two witnesses are actually bombs or they're computers. Uh, I don't know if you saw recently, but they're now making humanoid type uh, computers. Uh, Sophia uh, was one of the most popular ones, but I'll tell you what's kind of creepy looking. But anyway, no, these are real men. These are real preachers, two witnesses, martyrs as the Bible calls them, which just means witness. Now why two? Because two is always what's required for capital punishment. Look what it says in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. The New Testament validates that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses, two witnesses specifically so that they can corroborate God's testimony that mankind deserves all the punishment it's going to get. And he's saying that's exactly what's going to happen. And it says they shall, actually the word means will, they will prophesy, not meaning they're going to foretell as much as, and they will be doing some of that because they're going to say, hey folks, look at the Bible. But they will be foretelling, not foretelling, but foretelling. They're going to be telling them, folks, you need to look, if you're wondering what's going to happen, read the book of Revelation. And they're going to be preaching to people. And so here's these two wonderful, godly men of God who God raises up that in the midst of this crazy world where this division between those accepting God and not is just getting worse and worse. And God puts this mark in the sand as it were. And he says, go out and tell folks that I am still a God of mercy. You can still be saved. And that's the message they're going to preach. Psalm 106, verse 45, and he remembered them for his covenant. I love this passage because King David gave it to Asaph. It says he gave, he remembered his covenant. And that's what God's going to do in the book of Revelation. He's going to remember his covenant and he, and it repented according to the multitude of his mercy, of his mercy. God is a God of mercy. God never his mercy endures forever. His mercy continues. 
This past week, boy, we had a deluge of water, didn't we? It was amazing. My wife and I were driving down the road after one of those big rain downpours, and there was this wonderful rainbow. It was just beautiful. It was gorgeous. I read an interesting fact about rainbows this week I'd never heard before, and that is that no person sees the exact same rainbow, because no matter where you're, you could be right next to each other, but those rainbows are actually little particles of water that are like prisms with the sun, but when I look at it, I look at one place, and the next person next to me sees a little different one, and so we all see a little different rainbow. A rainbow is actually a sign of God's mercy. God brought it to remind Noah that he is a God of mercy, not going to judge the world like this anymore. Isn't it amazing, beautiful, and reminder that no matter who we are, we all can get the mercy of God, no matter who I am, what sin I've done. I don't have the sin of my wife. My wife doesn't have my sin, but no matter what my sin is, God's mercy is there. And so the witnesses are spiritually prepared. They are sovereignly portioned. And number three, they are simply presented. Look at verse three. I give power to the two witnesses. Why two? Because we need two to establish capital punishment. God is saying, look, no doubt about what I've got to do. They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation period. Uh, three and a half years. Notice what it says. They'll be clothed in sackcloth. Very uniquely, God is saying these men will be clothed in gunny sacks, this coarse old sacks. Now, uh, we know that they would use these for exactly that, onions, or uh, they'd put uh, different grain in them. But in fact, they were also used symbolically. Just like today, when you have a wedding, sometimes they'll wear white, of course the women do, and others will wear different colors symbolically. Men oftentimes will wear blue, women wear pink, just a symbolic God used it symbolically. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 26, it was used by prophets often. O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth and wallow thyself in ashes and make thee mourning. Sackcloth is often a symbol of the fact of repentance and of mourning and expressing of sadness and humility. And so here are these two prophets now. They are the prophets of God. They're witnessing to God's mercy and to God's great grace. And they are here clothed in sackcloth as a symbol of their grieving hearts and the conditions of the world, grieving over what is happening, grieving over the sin that's in the world and the fact that God has to judge it. And then comes the end. Leonard Ravenhill said this, the great revivalist, the true man of God is heartsick, grieved at the worldliness grieved at the toleration of sin, grieved at our prayerlessness. And so here are these two prophets. They are clothed in sackcloth. They're probably weeping as they preach. They can't stand the fact of what's happened to their country, stand the fact that's happened to the world. They're grieved over sin. They're sad that God has to judge the world. And yet at the same time, they're so grateful that God's mercy endures forever. Two wonderful ministers of mercy preaching about God's grace. And then not only are they spiritually prepared and sovereignly portioned and simply presented, but they are supernaturally perpetuated. Number four, look at verse four. Now again, this is a difficult passage. So listen closely. 
Let's read verse 4 together if you would. All right, ready to begin. And these two are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now we have again a a great symbol here, a great colorful metaphorical description of each of them. Their candlesticks is what they are. Their olive trees is what they are. Well, in order to understand that, we have to kind of compare Scripture. One of the rules of interpretations of the Bible is to compare one Scripture with another. This idea of someone being a candlestick in an olive tree comes straight out of the book of Zechariah. The Old Testament Zechariah had a similar vision. And as true with so many of the Old Testament prophets, there was both a near and a far fulfillment. Very common. A historic fulfillment, which is near, and a future messianic fulfillment. Now let's think about the book of Zechariah. Go ahead and turn there, if you will, to chapter 4. We'll be going there in just a moment. In Zechariah's time, there were also two witnesses. They were Joshua, the high priest, and they were Zerubbabel, the leader of the area. As I mentioned, Zerubbabel was the one who encouraged them to go back and start building the temple and made provision for that. And so God told Zechariah, he said, now, Zechariah, I want you to go. You are a prophet. I want you to fire these two guys up. Joshua, not the Joshua of the Pentateuch, but the Joshua in um, Zechariah's time. He was the high priest. He said, I want you to go get a hold of Joshua, and I want you to get a hold of the leader, Zechariah, two witnesses that will be a witness to what God has planned for Israel. And so... Uh, and as a, as a motivation of that, I want you to know that they are going to be my witnesses, but they are going to be spirit-filled. They're going to have the oil of the Holy Spirit. And so let's go to chapter 4, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 1. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is waked out of his sleep. <laughs> wake up, wake up and see what God is doing. Amen. We got to wake up. Verse 2. And said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of all gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and seven lamps. You may have seen the symbol of a seven stick candlestick in the Jewish setting. And with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes going down to the bowl, which are on the top thereof, and two olive trees by it. One on the right side of the bowl and one upon the left side of the bowl. And so here's this uh, unique vision. Two olive trees with some sort of pipes stuck in them. (laughs) And so uh, these olive trees are providing oil. And oil was used for everything in the Middle East, still is really. They used it for cooking. They used it for lamps. They used it for you name it. They just used it for everything. They used it for medicine. And so this, uh, they had these pipes uh, in, the, in this vision, in the olive trees, running down to a bowl. And then from that bowl came these lamps. And that's what God is saying, that there are two olive trees, two spirit-filled, perpetually spirit-filled uh, olive trees that are filled with the oil of God, filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And they are going to be a light to this world. God was telling prophet Zechariah about Joshua and Zerubbabel. That's who they were going to be. 
But as always, almost always in the Old Testament, when you have those prophetical books, there's a near historic fulfillment and there's a future messianic fulfillment. When Zechariah got that and when he preached that, he was looking for a day far beyond. And that is right now in the book of Revelation chapter 11. And that's what we need. We need spirit-filled lights for God. God has called us to do that. One of the greatest books on prayer is called The Power of Prayer by E.M. Bounds. And here's what he said about a church, an anointed church. The church, looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is men and women whom the Holy Ghost can anoint as a light to this world, people of prayer. And that's what these two ministers of mercy will be. These two witnesses, they are spiritually prepared sovereignly proportioned, simply presented, and thank God, they are perpetuated by the power of the Spirit of God. And then finally, this morning, they are sensationally protected. Wow, look at this. Look at verse 5. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Not because they had habanero chilies there, but it says they were proceed out of their mouth and devoureth the enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in the same manner be killed. Now, I've heard of bad breath, but that's amazing. Look at verse 6. These have the power to shut heaven. What? That it rains not Hmm. in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood. Oh, my. And smite the earth with plagues as often as they will. Look at this. Fire, drought, water turned to blood. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, it should because uh, in that we uh, certainly get the idea of Moses and Elijah. Now, there are uh, many reasons. Now, they don't not have to be Moses and Elijah coming back. They could just be two prophets of God. And there's certainly no specific verse that says it is them coming back. But there's at least four reasons this morning why many Bible scholars suggest that, in fact, this is none other than Moses and Elijah coming back. What an amazing thing that is. You talk about ministers of mercy. God brings back two of the greatest men of the Old Testament. First of all, the similarity of their actions. The similarity of their actions. Elijah brought down fire from heaven in 2 Kings chapter 1. And he consumed the enemies. Moses turned the water into blood and smote the evil workers of Egypt with plagues. And so Elijah and Moses very well could be in the fact of the similarity of their actions. The second reason might be that actually some thought would be that they were actually prophesied to come back. Let's go to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Hear the last uh, Old Testament prophet. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and the great dreadful day of the Lord. That's why they said about Jesus, they said, are you Elijah? (laughs) No. Verse 6, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to children and the heart of the children to their fathers. What an incredible promise that we need strong families as never before. And Really, if this promise then is about the final days, the last end days, 
God is saying that in the tribulation time will be surprisingly so, a time where there be strong marriages, strong families, because people will have, they're going to say, we need the Bible, we need God. And kind of like we feel now that there's just sense that we need each other now more than ever. And God said, that's the, the, I, that's a symbolism of the final days, Elijah. Then some believe that this is a promise in Deuteronomy 18, that Moses would come back. And that's actually what the Jewish people believe. Verse chapter 18, verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, speaking of the last days. And in fact, during Jesus's life on earth in John 1 and verse 21, they asked him, they said, are you Elijah? Are you Elias? And he said, I am not. And then they said, are you that prophet? They had just been talking about Moses. Are you Elijah or are you Moses? And so he said, no. And so there's a second reason why we feel like it might, in fact, actually be Elijah and Moses, and that is because of prophecy. There's a third reason, and that is because of the transfiguration. Those were the two men that joined Jesus in a prefiguring of the end time. When, they, when Jesus was transfigured before them, which is a symbol of his coming again in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and in Luke 9. And then finally, fourthly, they both left life in unusual ways. Elijah didn't die. The Bible says he just took, he went up on a chariot. He just vanished. And then there's still confusion about the body of Moses. In fact, the book of Jude says that they were looking for the body of Moses, couldn't find it. Why? Because maybe God had a plan to reconfigure it and bring him back. Elijah left in a different way as Moses did. Really, in all of this, it's just a message of God's mercy. When you think about it, in the end times when all this world is going crazy and there's these demonic hordes are everywhere and the Antichrist is standing up saying, I am God and Jewish people are being massacred and thousands and yet thousands are coming to Christ and uh, an innumerable number of uh, Gentiles are coming to the Lord because God is merciful. That's what it says in Psalm 86 and verse 5, thou Lord art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy to those that call upon thee. Sometimes people say, well, how can I get God's mercy? Have I done so much that I, can I, can God still love me? And the answer is yes. God is plenteous in mercy. Today, there are religious groups that say we have to do penance to get God's mercy. I don't need to do penance. God has already done all that for me. I just need to accept Christ as a humble heart. And God will come to me and he'll save me when I will come to him and thank God for his amazing mercy. Isn't it incredible that in the end times when you might imagine that if God ever had the right to just bring judgment on this world, he gives mercy and he sends these two amazing ministers that are saying, folks, God's mercy endures forever. You don't need a therapist. You need Christ. You don't need another pill. You need the Bible of God. You need the saved. And if you'll do that, God's mercy will be yours. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.